Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. You know, once a month we play a lecture that's been given here at Beeson in the past, and these episodes are among the most popular in the Beeson podcast series. Well, today you're in for a real treat because you're going to hear one of the great Bible teachers, I think, of our time today, Dr. F. Dale Bruner. Dr. Bruner gave these lectures here at Beeson in 2011, an introduction to the Gospel of John. Let me tell you just a little bit about him and then prepare you for this wonderful uh, lecture on John chapter 4. Uh, Dr. Bruner uh, lives in California. He taught for many years at Whitworth College in Spokane, Washington. Uh, before that, he was a missionary and a professor at Union Theological Seminary in the Philippines. And it was while he was there, as he says in this lecture, that he really learned uh, the importance of teaching the Bible in story form. And he does that in this lecture. He, he tells the story of the Gospel of John with a lot of depth and theological insight uh, as a narrative, as a story. And it's done such a wonderful way, so engaging, insightful. Uh, you're going to love hearing Dr. Dale Bruner uh, present this talk on John chapter 4, the story of the Samaritan woman. Uh, this has actually now been published in his commentary on the Gospel of John, which came out from Erdman's in 2012, The Gospel of John, A Commentary. You may want to get that. It's a wonderful resource. Well, let's go now to Hodges Chapel, the year 2011, and hear our friend Dr. Dale Bruner as he speaks on John chapter 4. I'm going to give this uh, lecture in more sermonic, conversational form because it is a sermon and it is a series of conversations. Uh, the written form will be in the commentary, and I hope that this will be accessible to you. I learned in the Philippines while we were missionaries that I needed to be more of a storyteller than a lecturer if I wanted my students to be awake. And so I, I hope that I may use that privilege here with you. I'm very honored to have been asked by Dean George to be here and grateful for your presence at this lecture and hope that it will be helpful. I intend to go through the three parts in three uh, different segments. Would, if you wouldn't mind standing for the, each part, uh, I hope to leave 15 minutes at the end for corrections, questions, uh, comments. Uh, I very much like interchange uh, uh, over the text. Our text is Jesus' Samaritan Woman Sermon in the fourth chapter. It follows immediately on the Nicodemus Sermon, where Jesus did not seem to make a great deal of progress, but he, uh, this is his first Gentile or extra-Israel conversion story, and it is exciting. I love to tell it. So if those who can would please stand for the first 15 verses of our passage. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist was, even though Jesus himself was not doing the baptizing his disciples were, Jesus left Judea in the south and he went up to Galilee in the north. Now, he had to, it's a very strong, ed day, it's the very first word in the imperfect meaning, ongoing. He had to go through Samaria. And he came to a village of Samaria named Sychar, very near, near the plot of land that the patriarch Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. 
And Jesus, exhausted by his journey, sat down on the well. It was about 12 o'clock noon. And a Samaritan woman came uh, to the well. And Jesus said to her, and notice how he does evangelism, Would you please give me a drink of water? You see, his disciples had gone off to town to buy food. And she said to him, How come you, a Jewish male, are asking me, a Samaritan female, for water? Then John explained, You see, Jews tried to have as little to do as possible with Samaritans. And now the major verse in this first third of the passage. Jesus said to her, If you only knew the free gift of God and who it is who is talking to you and asking you for a drink of water, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said, Sir, you don't even have a bucket, and this is a very deep well. Where are you going to get this living water you're talking about? Do you think you're greater than the patriarch Jacob who gave us this well and who drank from it in person with his children and with his cattle? And then the second great sentence, verse 14, Jesus said to her, Whoever drinks water from this well will be thirsty again. But whoever once drinks of the water I give will never thirst again. In fact, the water I give that person will become to that person a fountain gushing up into deep, lasting life. She said to him, Sir, Would you please give me this water so I won't be thirsty anymore and won't have to keep coming to this well to draw water? Ah. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples, notice the baptistic sequence here. You make and then you baptize disciples. The Great Commission has this sequence too. It's interesting. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, so move out, disciple all nations, baptizing them into the... And uh, we Presbyterians pass over that rather quickly and move on to the next verse. Uh, uh, Jesus, uh, even though Jesus himself was not doing the baptizing, uh, his disciples were. It says he left Judea in the south and he went up to Galilee in the north. John had just said, the Baptist had just said the previous chapter, he must increase, I must decrease. But isn't it interesting that Jesus is the one decreasing? It's almost as though he doesn't want to compete with John or or trump him. Uh, It's a mysterious move. Then the very strong word, dei, which is in the imperfect ed dei, meaning he had to. And I think especially in the third part, when we see the work of the Spirit, the Spirit is moving him. And may we be sensitive to the have-tos, the musts, of the Spirit who impels us to certain callings and places. He had to go through Samaria. He came to a village of Samaria named Sychar, very near the plot of land that the patriarch Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Sychar, I'm told, is modern Nablus, which is very much in the news often in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, exhausted by his journey, sat down at the well. You know, I think it's fair to say that in the Synoptic Gospels, the humanity of Jesus is in the front, and the divinity just shines through every once in a while. In John's Gospel, it's the reverse. His divinity is up in front, and his humanity every once. And this is one of the great places, exhausted. Uh, He was a real human being, and he got tired. In John's Gospel, he also says on the cross, I'm so thirsty, and another uh, glimpse of humanity. I'm uh, on the evangelical conservative wing of my denomination, and 
in our uh, tradition, in the conservative tradition, we sometimes, if I may say it, put it this way, we overdo the deity to this, this point by underplaying his humanity as though he wasn't exhausted. Uh, this is, I've used this a number of times now. It's getting tattered, but from the old Life magazine, 1994, the cover article was, Who is Jesus? And they had major representatives of the Christian church give their little definitions. And the two most interesting were the Reverend Jerry Falwell, pastor of Thomas Road Baptist Church, Lynchburg, Virginia, and the one right beneath it, F. Forrester Church, Unitarian minister. And I think you'll see the two, uh, uh, I think, extreme positions here. Uh, pastor Falwell's position is quite responsible, I think, until the last sentence. Tell me if he's not gone a bit too far. Jesus never once yielded to sin, nor was he at any time susceptible to injury or harm or hurt from anything, mortal or otherwise. Did the cross hurt? Peter's denial, Judas' betrayal, and in our eagerness, and I write, rightful eagerness to hold up the deity of Christ, we sometimes downplay his true humanity. Uh, in John's epistle, he says in the fourth chapter, don't believe every spirit. Here is how you may tell the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ came in the flesh is of God. And docetism, as you know, seemism, he seemed like he was human, but actually it was God just walking around with a costume. Uh, no, no. So let's hold on to the true humanity of Christ and let him be one of us. So, <clears throat> uh, exhausted by his journey, 12 noon, high noon, and a woman of Samaria came, I realized after I drew this, I mean to have her looking angry here, but looks like she's well built, and I, uh, <laughs> I, I did not mean to be pornographic or suggestive, but uh, <clears throat> notice I'm impressed how Jesus approaches her. When you ask a question, you're putting yourself in beneath that person socially, and his opening remark to her not is, is not, do you realize you're a sinner or something, but it's, would you, would you please give me a drink of water? I love the human way Jesus approaches people. And then John explains, you see, his disciples had gone off to town to buy some food. And then she says to him, a little hostile, how come you, a Jewish male, are asking me, a Samaritan female, for a drink of water? And then it said, John, John explains, you see, Jews tried to have as little to do as possible with Samaritans. Samaritans had been intermarried, and there had been uh, a, quite a Gentile infusion. There had been a little bit of idolatry, and they were, Samaritans were the most, even more suspect than Gentiles and not, not uh, liked. But Jesus is going to break here the racial barrier, the gender barrier, she's a woman, and he's going to break what will seem to be the moral barrier in a moment. And uh, Jesus' wall breaker, I, I, he, he breaks through the various walls. And you've experienced that in Birmingham here uh, in a profound way. How come you, a Jewish male, are asking me? And then Jesus said to her, this is the greatest sentence in this first third of the passage. If you only knew the free gift of God. I love that. Uh, the gift of salvation, the gift of God's Holy Spirit bringing Christ is completely free. The word is dorian, and then it's theu, dorian theu, the free gift of God. If your name is Theodore, your name is God's gift. If your name is Dorothea, your name is gift of God. And uh, it's not if you only knew the trophy, if you only knew the honor, if you only knew the... Uh, uh, which you could acquire if you fulfilled three or four steps, uh, if you only knew the completely free gift and how grateful I am that salvation and the continual filling of the Holy Spirit is 
completely free, and it does not require any conditions, spiritual or otherwise, just ask, he's going to say here, which is just a way of faith exhaling, just please. If you only knew the free gift of God, and second, who it is who's talking to you. Oh, boy. Does she realize she's talking with God's eternal son, the Messiah? She doesn't yet, but she's going to in a moment. In our second Helvetic Confession in the Presbyterian Book of Confessions, at the introduction, there's a beautiful sentence. Predicatio verbi dei est verbum dei. The preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. Karl Barth has his three forms of the Word of God, the personal word, word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the canonical Word of God, Holy Scripture, and the verbal Word of God, preaching. And if the pastor or teacher is faithful in actually communicating what the text really says, do we know who we're listening to? Uh, the Reformers had a very high view of preaching. I'm unordained, and, but, uh, but nevertheless, I have a view that it's very hard for the spiritual life of a congregation to rise much higher than that of their pastor who preaches. And do we realize what we're communicating when we're communicating Holy Scripture? So he says to her, and we could say this to our people, if you only knew who it is who's talking to you and asking you for water, you would have asked. And I love the verb asked. I like it even better than believe. Let me tell you why. Believe is the key verb in the Gospel of John, by the way. I think you know that. God so loved the world, you know, whoever be Interestingly, the word believe never once has an adverb or an adjective in front of it. Like, truly believe. How do we know if I'm truly, sincerely or deeply or totally? No, just believe, believe, believe. And I just love the simplicity of that. But I'm not always sure if I'm believing. But asking is just believing, exhaling. And when we ask, we know we're believing then because we're, we're doing something. And so he makes it, he puts the cookies very low on the table here. You would have just asked, and he would have given you living water. And uh, she says, sir, she's not immediately impressed. You don't even have a bucket. And this is a very deep well. Living water was another word for spring water. Where are you going to get this spring water you're talking about? Come on. Do you think you're greater than the patriarch Jacob who gave us this well and who drank from it in person with his kids and his cattle? Come on. Hey, he's greater than Jacob. He made Jacob. All things were made by the word and through him, so on. <clears throat> and he now says to her, this is the second, verses 10 and 14 are the two big verses in paragraph 1. Whoever drinks water from this well will be thirsty again. But whoever once drinks the water I give will never, ever thirst. In fact, the water I give will become in that person a fountain gushing up into deep, lasting life. Uh, to me, it's very interesting. We long to be useful. We want to be helpful. We want to be fruitful. We want to help people. Uh, I've when Jesus called, or pardon me, when God called Abraham in the Old Testament, it wasn't just leave your land and your kindred and come to a country and I'll save you. It's I'll make you a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Uh, he called him not only to personal salvation, but to social and external mission salvation. And, and when Jesus called Peter, it wasn't follow me and I'll save your soul. It was follow me and I'll make you catching with people. And we long to have that. And he's promising that woman. If you drink for this water, you'll be turned into a fountain. And in a minute, she's going to overflow in her little village and win half of the village to Christ just because she's drunk from this well. I have a little problem with part of the verse. He says, you'll never, the person who drink will never thirst again. But believers in Scripture thirst like the heart petteth after the water brook. How so petteth my heart? But I think he means uh, 
you'll know where the water, where the well is. It won't be the thirst for where, where do I go. Uh, it's, uh, uh, it, Jesus Christ is deeply satisfying, and we thirst for him, but we know who he is and where to go. So, Jesus, uh, she, she says to him, but now, this is the last part of the third. She asks, not perfectly, it's an imperfect notice. She says, please give me some of this water, would you, sir? So I won't be thirsty anymore and have to keep coming to this well. She thinks this is a Ponce de Leon kind of fountain that, uh, of, uh, she thinks it'll meet her natural needs. She doesn't realize. But, even though she asked imperfectly, she asked. And that's all Jesus asked. And so now we come into the second part of the passage, and if you wouldn't mind standing, please, for the, uh, the middle third. This was living water. Jesus attempted evangelism. This is now a section on true worship. He has ministered the gospel. Now he has to minister the law because she needs to go a little bit uh, further. Jesus said to her, Would you please call your husband and ask him to come here? And she said, uh, uh, I don't have a husband. And Jesus, listen how gracious he is. You told the truth. You don't have a husband. You have had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. Thank you for telling the truth. She said, Sir, I have the feeling you're a prophet. And then she said, You know what? Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. You Jews say everybody's got to worship in Jerusalem if they want to be saved. And Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you people will be worshiping the Father. I'm sorry to tell you, but you do not understand what it is you worships you worship. We do understand, for salvation comes from the Jewish people. The hour is coming, and it's happening right now, he says to her, when the true worshipers will worship the Father by means of the Spirit, Holy Spirit, and the truth. <clears throat> for the Father also, in addition to Jesus here, the Father also is actively seeking exactly such people to worship him. You see, God is spirit, and the people who worship him have got to worship him by means of the Spirit, Holy Spirit, and truth, Jesus Christ. She said, thank you, sir, very much for this lecture, but I know this much that when the Christ comes, who's called the Mashiach, the anointed one, he'll explain everything. Jesus said to her, I am he, I, the man talking to you. Whoa. Just then, Jesus' disciples arrived. They were a little surprised he was talking with a woman, but not one of them said to him, What are you looking for? Why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar at the well, and she went back to the city, and she said to them, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. You don't think this could be the Messiah, do you? They took off from town and were making their way back to Jesus. The word of the Lord, again, thanks be to God. You know, they say that, uh, and the Reformers are big on this, particularly Luther preaching both law and gospel. And we need to do both. We need to comfort the afflicted, the gospel, and we need to afflict the comfortable, the law. And we need uh, to, to have a, a thoughtful mixture of both of these. Well, Jesus has tried the gospel in verses 10 to 14, free gift and fountain and so on, but he's, she doesn't quite get it yet. So he has to convict her of her sin, and he does it as delicately as he can. Would you please... Call your husband and ask him to come here. And I just imagine her clearing her throat. <laughs> um, uh, I don't have a husband. And then I think it's so gracious. At both ends of his conviction, he says, you told the truth. You don't 
you have had five, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. Then he says at the end, you did tell the truth. And I think that's so, even when he convicts her, he holds her up with both hands. Uh, If we take Jesus' true humanity seriously, we can kind of wonder, how did he know she had had five husbands and that she was living with a man who wasn't her husband? Perhaps prophetic uh, knowledge, because prophets in the Old Testament often had a supernatural knowledge. The most comic comment I read was by a 19th century German commentator who said, just as the woman was approaching him, a man went by and said, watch out, you don't become number seven. Uh, (laughs) And he was serious, he thought, because he couldn't, otherwise, how do you make the math here? And uh, you've had five husbands and the man you're living, and we've been taught by thoughtful women commentators particularly, that she could be the victim here of, of abusive men, and, and so we've got to be careful on, uh, on overplaying her immor- so-called immorality. In any case, her life is uh, irregular and unusual, and it does convict her. And she now hears, she says, you know, I have the feeling you're a prophet. And uh, then immediately she says, you know, our people worship here in this mountain. You Jews say everybody's, why does she do that? There are two main theories. And uh, even the way I gave the tone, you can already see how I tend to understand it, a little bit cynically. Namely, the moment she's convicted, she tries to get into a religious argument. And what about the Crusades? And what about all the the, the pastor who just ran off with his organist wife and so on? Or, you know, that's how I understand it, but I may be cynical. Thought other people say, since she now knows he's a prophet, she's asking the major theological question in Samaria. Where is God worshipped? here in Gerizim, where they have a little place, or in Jerusalem. Uh, I think she's just trying to get Jesus off her case and uh, start an argument, but Jesus won't. And uh, he now gives a little, he sort of gave a little classic on evangelism here. There's a classic on worship here. He said, Believe me, woman, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, you people, it's a plural, will be worshiping the Father, the confidence that he has in his, this mission. And then he did, does something which we were taught as missionaries in the Philippines that uh, we were not to do, and I think it's correct. He slightly uh, criticizes her religion or insults it, says, you people don't know what it is you worship, but we do know. Salvation comes from the Jewish people. I like the latter half of that sentence. There are a number of mar- remarks about Jews in the Gospel of John particularly that are... Uh, almost have an anti-Semitic flavor and sound. This is the most pro-Semitic sentence in the Gospel of John. Salvation comes from the Jewish people. It does, of course, Jesus Christ is Jewish. When he took flesh, he took Jewish flesh. Uh, The New Testament, with the exception of Luke Acts, is uh, is Jewish. And we owe, and of course, the great Old Testament heritage. Believe me, the hour is coming. In fact, in the next sentence, he says, and is now happening. And I wonder if he sees the twinkle in her eye. Is that it or something? But he has the sense it's happening now. The hour is coming. In fact, it's happening right now when the true worshipers will worship the Father by means of the Spirit and the truth. Uh, I'm using this symbol for God the Father, this symbol for Christ, and the dove for the Holy Spirit. It's all, I think it's, I could say uh, that the majority consensus now is that this S should be capitalized, Spirit and truth both. Truth in the Gospel of John is not Plato's forms or uh, the abstract uh, ideal. It is Jesus Christ, remember? Uh, Thomas, Lord, we have the foggiest idea where, where you're going. Uh, Jesus, I am the way, the truth, 
and the life. And spirit, in almost every use in the, the word pneuma in Greek, is, is the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John. And the only way we come to God is through the Holy Spirit's working through Christ the Word and the proclamation of that Word, and then we come to the Father. This t- verse has been interpreted as we can worship God in the golf course just in our spirit and uh, when we're sincere. It means worship without forms and without liturgy and so on. That is not at all the meaning. Uh, the meaning is we need the Holy Spirit to work inside our lives as the living water to draw us to the truth who is the Lord Jesus Christ who gives us God the Father. For God is spirit. There's another reason why it should be capitalized. And those who worship him have got to worship him by means of the spirit and the truth. Well, this is a pretty heavy lecture for her. And she says, thanks a lot. That's interesting. But I know this much. A Messiah is coming one day who's called the Mashiach. And when he comes, he'll explain everything. And now, Jesus gives the first I am of his seven in the whole gospel uh, of John. He didn't give it to Nicodemus or even to his disciples in the previous chapter. He said, I am, ego, me. I am he. I, the man you're talking with. To me, that shows the free gift character, the grace character, that he gives it to this not entirely civil, now she's been kind of rude, woman, uh, and that she seems to be three strikes and you're out uh, in terms of gender, race, and uh, moral life, and yet it is to her that he gives his I am. And if you're feeling not particularly altogether and spiritually low this morning, he is especially on your case. I love the opening beatitude in Matthew's Gospel. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who aren't thrilled with themselves or their spiritual life, there in the kingdom. And that's what Jesus now gives her. Well, just then, right then, his disciples arrived, and it says they were a little surprised he was talking with a woman. Rabbis weren't supposed to do it in public, but Jesus, though, it's different. But they said, not one of them said to her, said to him, why are you talking to her? What are you looking for? I like that verse a lot. Uh, There is a sexual crisis in the clergy now, so grateful for what Talbert is uh, doing in the sexual addiction area. I'm told there's a porn epidemic now with the, with the uh, electronic media and so on. And to be a really moral, faithful husband, friend, spouse is such a high gift. And they can trust Jesus Christ in the moral area. And may the Lord help us all. They didn't say, why are you talking? What are you looking for? The woman left her jar there at the water at the well, and there's a lot of comment and ink spelled on that. Why does it symbolizes that she has, she's going to come back, symbolizes she's on a more important mission now than just water. Uh, it's just a nice figure. And she went back to her village, and she gives this sermon. Now, I don't know uh, how Doug Webster would grade this sermon. Uh, forgive me, I think I would give it a D. Barely passing. I don't see how this would confer to Titmouse. Listen to it. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. You don't think this could be the Messiah, do you? I would mark in there, too experiential. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Come, uh, too experiential. Uh, it's, he's not just a man, he just told you. He's I, the I am, he's the Messiah. That's another markdown. And you're not supposed to end a sermon with, you don't think this is true what I just said, do you? She's, I mean, <laughs> so pardon me, almost every part, it, it, it limps. It's not a, it's not a, th- and yet, it, we'll learn in 10 verses later, it converted the village. 
And what I learned from that is when the spirit is in the message, uh, it'll do it. And look, it's got some things going for it. It's honest. Not one, you know, superfluous word. Uh, it's enthusiastic. I'm told that's helpful, too, when you're preaching, and you, it's like you really believe it, too. It's short. I'm told that's helpful. And uh, <laughs> so, but, but look at it. I think the, the gospel writers put it in this just to tell us, folks, prepare your sermon as well as you can and be as thoughtful as you can, but if you, please be enthusiastic. Uh, and anyway, and it says the whole village came and started down the mountain and headed towards Jesus. And now we come to the third and last, and may I ask you to stand for a last time. This next section is on work and fulfilling work in the apostles and the world. Meanwhile, the disciples were trying to urge Jesus, saying, Rabbi, please have something to eat. He said, Gang, I have food to eat you don't know anything about. They said to each other, Do you think somebody brought him lunch while we were away? He said, My food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to finish his work. You have this proverb, four months yet till harvest. Rome wasn't built in a day. But look, lift up your eyes. Take a look. The field is white already in the harvest. And already the reaper is getting paid for her work and gathering crops into a deep lasting life. In fact, things are going so fast that the sower and the reaper are having their celebration party at the same time. And here's a proverb that is true. One is sowing, the others are reaping. Because I'll, I've sent you guys out to reap a field you didn't have to work on at all. Others did all the work, and you get to enter into the fruit of their labor. And now the concluding paragraph. And so many of these Samaritans believed in Jesus because of the word of the witnessing woman, particularly her sentence, he told me everything I ever did. And when they got to Jesus, they asked him, please stay with us a while, would you? And he did two more days. And now many more of the Samaritans believed in him because of his word. And they said to each other, they said to the woman, we no longer believe because of your little speech, but we've heard the man for himself, and we know that this man is really, that word is in the text, alethos, this man is really the Savior of the cosmos. Again, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. The disciples have gotten the food. They've found Jesus. The lady has gone back. Rabbi, please have something to eat, would you? And he said, fellas, I've got food to eat you don't know anything about. There's something deeply fulfilling about being in the will of God and doing his work. And I have my wife's permission to share this, but she is, she is a product and grateful for the 12-step program, Overeaters Anonymous, OA. And I was very surprised it wasn't until you get to the fourth step where you give a fearless moral inventory that you could get rid of your longing for chocolate and other things. I didn't know that what we did spiritually had anything to do with chocolate. And uh, the, whole, the, the, the whole food thing, apparently to be in the will of God, which the 12-step program does help people find uh, very often, actually can free us of addictions. Still a great mystery to me, but it was uh, a major miracle in our family's life. Uh, I have food to eat you guys don't know anything about. My food is to do the will of the one who sent me. And may you and I know his will for us and do it and find it and be in it. And I think it can actually be nourishing, physically even. I've learned that. And then he gives a proverb, 
four months till harvest. You sowed in December, and then in late March and April, they, you reaped. And it was like our Rome wasn't built in a day. Don't expect miracles. People tell us that. You, you can't have, you don't expect something to happen just like that. Hey, that does not apply when the, with the kerygma, with the gospel. The gospel works immediately, and God the Holy Spirit is at work in the word. Rudolf Bultmann's commentary on John is the most powerful for preachers. I recommend it. <clears throat> the power of the word. Immediately, it's, it's the eschatological event. When we're talking about the great Christ event, Christ is actually present with the power of his Holy Spirit working in people. And uh, he said, four months till harvest, you have, it's not true. Lift up your eyes. And the commentators think they're coming down from uh, their village on Mount Gerizim, and they're white. Lift, and there are three visual uh, verbs. Lift up your eyes. Look, see? The fields are white to harvest. And you and I need to know that people are really needy and are more eager for the gospel than you and I realize. Looks like it's hard out there. I mean, it, it, it is. And yet, there are a lot of hurting people. It says, when Jesus looked out in the crowds, his heart went out to them. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And, dear Lord, give us this heart. And he said, things are going so fast that the reaper is, and I think it's the woman, is already gathering crops and getting paid her wage spiritually. And things are going so fast that the sower himself and the reaper are having a... She's, for the first time, leading people to a good place, and he's now seeing this, and they're both just thrilled. And he said, here's a proverb that is true. One sows, another reaps. Uh, the closest equivalent I've heard is that one did all the work, and the other person got all the credit. What he's saying here is, he and the Holy Spirit and God the Father, remember back there, it says, the Father also is actively seeking. It's not just Jesus, the Son, who's seeking. The Father's up there seeking. The Son is seeking, the risen Christ. The Holy Spirit is seeking. Do you and I have the chutzpah to think that it is we who bring God to our congregations, to our parishes, to our classes? There is actually a God, and he is quite uh, competent. And he is alive and well on planet Earth, and he's at work in the people where we are working. And that's what this last text is trying to tell us. <clears throat> Others, and I think that should be capitalized too, like spirit and truth, I think he's talking of the Spirit and the truth and the Father are doing all the work, and we get to enter into the fruit of their labor. I do really think that we need to believe that God is involved in the work we're doing and that we're not just the ones who are bringing God. Do you follow me? Uh, and then it says, many of those Samaritans believed in Jesus because, and then three W's, of the word of the witnessing woman. Women's ministry, forgive me again, this is probably controversial, but uh, isn't it interesting that the first missionary that he sent in mission here was a woman. He knew this would happen. She'd become a fountain, and I think it honors her. <clears throat> and when they got to Jesus, they asked him, please, stay with us, would you, a while? He did two more days. Wouldn't you love to have a transcript of the conversations those two days? Oh, what did they talk about and what did they learn and so on? And it said that now many more believed because of his word. And they told the woman, I think almost semi-humorously, we know that was a fun sermon you gave him, but it's no longer because of that. We've heard the man for himself. And we know, and I love this last sentence, that this man really, and I like that word really so much, alethos, really, what we long for more than anything else, I think, in our time, the age of reason, 18th century, romance, 19th century, reality, the 20th and 21st. We want what is real, not just what it does is nice and helpful or whatever, but the true. And we really do believe that in contact with Jesus of Nazareth, 
We are in contact with capital T Truth, and we are so grateful. This man is really the Savior of the world, cosmos. There's that great word. May I conclude? Because the whole free Dorian gift character ask the gracious Jesus grace uh, that God does all the work and we get to enter into it, because of the simplicity of this chapter, I think, and of the whole Gospel of John, uh, I want to concentrate on the word ask and the simplicity of it. And the best little modern secular parable that I found on this, I first heard this on Garrison Keeler, and it was Billy Collins' poem, The Lanyard. I wonder if any of you have come in contact with it. When I heard this, I said, this is almost exactly ask, believe. The simplicity of this little poem is to me uh, a parable of the grace character of the gospel. May I read it to you and conclude with it, and then I'll say a prayer, and then I I look forward to to, uh, discussion. The Lanyard by Billy Collins. The other day, as I was ricocheting slowly off the blue walls of this room, bouncing from typewriter to piano, from bookshelf to an envelope lying on the floor, I found myself in the L section of the dictionary, where my eyes fell upon the word lanyard. No cookie nibbled by a French novelist could send one more suddenly into the past, a past where I sat at a workbench at a camp by a deep Adirondack lake, learning how to braid thin plastic strips into a lanyard, a gift for my mother. I had never seen anyone use a lanyard or wear one, if that's what you did with them. But that did not keep me from crossing strand over strand again and again until I had made a boxy red-and-white lanyard for my mother. She gave me life and milk from her breasts, and I gave her a lanyard. She nursed me in many a sick room, lifted teaspoons of medicine to my lips, said cold face face cloth on my forehead, then led me out into the airy light and taught me to walk and swim, and I in turn presented her with a lanyard. Here are thousands of meals, she said, and here's clothing and a good education, and here is your lanyard, I replied, which I made with a little help from a counselor. Here is a breathing body and a beating heart, strong legs, bones and teeth, and two clear eyes to read the world, she whispered, and here I said is a lanyard I made at camp. And here I wish to say to her now is a smaller gift, not the archaic truth that you can never repay your mother, but the rueful admission that when she took the two-toned lanyard from my hands, I was as sure as a boy could be that this useless, worthless thing I wove out of boredom would be enough to make us even. (laughs) The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Heavenly Father, we pray for the free gift now of your Holy Spirit that we may believe the gospel and be of help to your hurting, needy, white-as-harvest world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.